This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome once again to the Audio Imaginarium. It is cold and scary out there, but you'll be safe and warm in here. And as Morpheus explained to Nero in The Matrix, this is your last chance. After this, there's no turning back. You take the blue pill... The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth. Nothing more. Welcome, my friends. Uh, A couple of uh, items, housekeeping items, before we proceed further. Uh, First, a big hearty welcome to our new affiliate, AM 1300 AM, Sorry, eighteen. Uh, sorry, thirteen hundred a.m. Thirteen hundred a.m. in Beaumont, Texas. That's KSET Talk Radio. Thirteen a.m. Beaumont, Texas. Welcome aboard, and thanks so much for making the Conspiracy Show part of your radio family. Uh, one other item: uh, the passing of Nelson Mandela. Uh, obviously, uh, we we have to comment on that. And uh, he, Nelson Mandela, I think, had greatness in him, but. He was not the Messiah. Can I just put that out there for a moment, please? He was not the Messiah. No one with an ounce of humanity could argue that apartheid was evil and and all those who supported apartheid were and are evil. And Nelson Mandela's struggle uh, against it and ultimately his triumph over this evil make him, I think, a truly remarkable human being in many respects. Uh, But one of my son's uh, teachers the other day, on the day of his passing, told the class, listen to this, she told the class that Nelson Mandela went to prison for all of us. Does that sound sort of familiar? He went to prison for all of us. It sounds a little like Jesus dying on the cross for all of us, doesn't it? And uh, I have to say that this comparison is disturbing and concerning. Let's not forget Mandela's African National Congress was responsible for some pretty heinous crimes against humanity. Innocent civilians, including women and children, were murdered. And also, those who struggled alongside 
the ANC, struggled against apartheid, but perhaps didn't share the ANC's Marxist ideology, were accused of being white collaborators. And then came a practice known as necklacing, later to be called the Winnie Mandela's necklace, in which enemies of the ANC, both black and white, were executed, tortured, uh, carrying out, um, carried out of, uh, of their homes and by force, forced to wear a rubber tire that was filled with, uh, with petrol, it was placed around the victim's chest and their arms, and it was set on fire. And the victim may take up to 20 minutes to die, suffering severe burns in the process. And of course, Nelson Mandela never personally advocated this, as far as I know. He certainly disavowed violence once he was released from prison. But that is part of the legacy. He also cozied up to people like Libyan uh, strongman Gaddafi, Castro of Cuba, a couple of individuals with pretty poor records when it comes to human rights. And while we're discussing Libya, let us not forget that Mandela traveled to Scotland to lobby for the release of the Libyan bomber convicted uh, in that Lockerbie air disaster, which killed hundreds of innocent civilians. And it should be understood that Mandela wasn't just a socialist, he was an avowed Marxist. And what has become of South Africa? It is now, unarguably, the murder capital of the world. A woman there is raped every 30 minutes. And of the 40,000 white farmers that remain, 3,000 of them, 3,000 out of 40,000 have been murdered in the last decade, disemboweled, drowned in boiling water, burned to death, decapitated. Think of that, 3,000 out of 40,000 murdered. That's genocide. So yes, we should celebrate Mandela's achievements as South Africa's first black president. He formed a government of national unity in an attempt to defuse racial tension. He promulgated a new constitution, created the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to investigate past human rights abuses. Continuing the former government's liberal economic policy, his administration introduced measures to encourage land reforms, combat po poverty, and expand health care and services. But let us, not, let us not be confused. He was not the Messiah. He was a deeply flawed man. And as Mandela himself said, I was not a messiah, but an ordinary man who had become a leader because of extraordinary circumstances. Yes, a great man, but please, not the messiah. Now, another man who has at times been compared to a messiah is the current occupant of the White House. Uh, Chris Matthews, a commentator on MSNBC recently, compared President Barack Obama to Pope Francis. Recently, however, a liberal law professor by the name of Jonathan Turley of Georgetown University was speaking before the U.S. Congress, and he had some pretty alarming things to say concerning the Constitution and presidential powers. He pretty much sounded the alarms that the concentration of, uh, of imperial power in the executive branch under President Obama poses a great danger not only to the Constitution but also an unprecedented danger to the very republic itself. And again, this was not someone from the Tea Party like Rand Paul spouting off with a political axe to grind. This was a liberal, someone who would normally, you would expect to find, 
firmly entrenched in Obama's fan club. And he's not the only one sounding these alarms, but the expansion of power in the executive branch and the slow, inexorable march towards totalitarianism. A good friend of this program has been warning us about this very thing for a number of years, and I speak, of course, of Joel Skousen, the editor and publisher of the World Affairs Brief, who joins us now here on The Conspiracy Show. Joel, welcome. How are you, my friend? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, very cold out here. It's an amazing dip in the jet stream going clear down to Mexico and flooding the entire continent here with cold Canadian air. Well, uh, <laughs> it's our little gift from us to you, Joel. <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> uh, so. Well, you're getting some of your own medicine, of course. You guys always get that air. Yes, we've become acclimatized. Uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit. What can you tell us about this uh, this Jonathan Turley? He was speaking to uh, why. First of all, why was he asked to speak to Congress? And and uh, give us some insights into who this man is. Well, Jonathan Turley is a uh, a leftist uh, professor who is a socialist, uh, but he he doesn't appear to be a globalist. Uh, and there's a difference. Even though globalists are on the left, uh, they'll play both right and left, but they're essentially on the left because they have to promise benefits in order to stay in power like anyone else. But anyone who actually attacks Obama is, uh, you know, from the leftist side is not a globalist because the globalists know better. They know it, that Obama's a puppet, that it's not his regime. Uh, so Turley is legitimately concerned, though he doesn't have the proper perspective in my estimation. He does legitimately complain that both President Bush and President Obama used signing statements and executive orders that went far beyond uh, the reach or the ability. I mean, uh, clearly his one major sin that he's criticizing Obama for is changing Obamacare with uh, basically altering the law without legislation from Congress. This is an impeachable offense. And the thing that I'm critical of Professor Turley of is he doesn't mention the fact that the real problem is not that these two globalist puppets, one on the right, President Bush, and one on the left, President Obama, uh, are taking executive power. They are not because they're particularly... uh, you know, imbued with the power hunger. You know, this is not Obama trying to turn the country Marxist. Obama converted to becoming a globalist before he was made senator, and he's been on this puppet road. He basically takes orders from national security advisors and domestic security advisors, just like President Bush did. Of course, President Bush's uh, handler was Vice President Cheney, a real born and bred globalist who ran the vice presidency with a staff of 600 normal staff of vice president's about 25. But that's what it takes to run the White House from the vice president's office. But the big problem, and my concern, is that neither the Supreme Court or Congress are exercising their powers as part of the separations of powers to call the president to account. And both of them could do so. The Supreme Court could rule very clearly that Obama does not have the power to change law by executive order. And Congress could impeach the president. And there's not a whisper of impeachment. There's no one, even on the right, calling for Obama to be called to account. Uh, And that is an indication that both these other two branches are also uh, capitulating to the globalist agenda. And the globalists are calling the shots from behind the scenes of all three branches of government, not just the president's. 
Joel Skousen is with us, editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief, uh, talking about Jonathan Turley, the uh, liberal lawyer from Georgetown University, who was speaking to the House Judiciary Committee uh, earlier in the week, or last week, I believe, uh, a talk, warning, sounding the alarms about the expansion of power. Uh, well, you mentioned all three branches. Uh, we're sort of focusing here on the executive branch. Give us a sense of how the executive branch has changed. Let's say, uh, let's dial it back maybe 40 years uh, to the time when Richard Nixon was uh, was president, uh, the 37th president. Uh, compare and contrast that with uh, the, the powers of the uh, executive branch under uh, George W. Bush and then uh, President Barack Obama. Well, you know, the, the derailing of the American Constitution was well in uh, in force and going on under Nixon because he he was a fairly unstable individual. His presidency was really run by Henry Kissinger, who was a real dyed-in-the-wool globalist, who sold out uh, Vietnam to Red China um, during the war and uh, sold out China, of course, or Taiwan, free China, uh, to the Red Chinese, uh, gave them a seat on the, on the U.N. Security Council, which they certainly didn't have to do, even if they were replacing Taiwan, to give another communist branch a veto power in the U.N., which is technically not supposed to have any communists in the U.N. at all. Uh, but they've given them significant power in order to create this conflict that they've done. But talking about the president himself, uh, several books have been written talking about how Kissinger did control the presidency. They kept him um, drugged up on uppers and downers uh, a good portion of the time in order to make sure that uh, Kissinger could could take power. But Nixon did not, and the globalists had not, advisors had not caught on to, you know, using uh, executive power to the extent, and part of the reason was because Nixon, when he was coherent, um, you know, was a conservative and, and wasn't, and it was resistant to going along. So it was different, would have been difficult to get him to do the same kind of signing statements uh, uh, and executive orders that they've done with George W. Bush and uh, and Barack Obama. Let me just jump in here, Joel. Sorry. Let me just jump in. We'll take a timeout, come back on the other side. Joel Skousen, editor, publisher, World Affairs Brief. As we discuss the comments and the testimony, really, of liberal lawyer Jonathan Turley before the House Judiciary Committee, uh, sounding the alarm, saying that President Barack Obama and the expansion of uh, power, concentration of power in the executive branch, in the Oval Office, is a threat, a real danger to the republic. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. And uh, coming up in just a few moments, we'll uh, check in with Ron Patton, a publisher of Paranoia Magazine, and we'll discuss the government's secret plan to shut off cell phones and the Internet. Right now, Joel Skousen, editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief, stays with us talking about the threat to the Constitution, to liberty, uh, presented by the ever-expanding concentration of power in the Oval Office, the executive branch. Joel, uh, before we proceed, tell us how we can subscribe to World Affairs Brief. The brief is uh, showcased on my website, worldaffairsbrief.com. There is a modest subscription price uh, to get my weekly uh, analysis of the news. But people can get a free sample copy by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. That's editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. Uh, Joel, you were talking about, uh, you know, we're talking about the uh, the lack of checks and balances and how uh, the the president of the United States essentially has become like a Roman Caesar. 
uh, ruling by uh, edict or uh, executive order, and, and you mentioned Obamacare, uh, which you know is pretty arcane for for many of us to try. And I mean, how many pages is that uh, document? Uh, tens of thousands of pages. I'm wondering though if we could something that 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 everyone can relate to. I think, uh, and that is uh, the power of the president uh, to assassinate American citizens uh, without due process. I mean, this perhaps this has been going on. Uh, 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 secretly, but now it's you know it's obviously uh, known to all of us that this that this is going on. Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, what what's happening uh, there. I mean, is anyone uh, uh, launching some sort of a, a I don't know a court challenge or what, what's being done about the president's power to assassinate U.S. citizens wherever because the entire earth has been declared a battlefield wherever he you know he he chooses without due process. An eternal battlefield, because once you designate the war on terror, a legitimate war against uh, freedom, then everything becomes in a, uh, in a constant state of war, which justifies draconian war powers. And this is much of the underlying basis here. Yes, all of the various uh, denigrations and diminutions of uh, civil rights under the Constitution in America have been challenged by several organizations, not only the ACLU, but the uh, Electronic uh, Freedom Foundation and others, uh, uh, you know, public interest law firms, and the courts continue to defer to the government simply in saying the government says this is state secret, and so, you know, they don't have to talk to you. They don't have to talk to the courts. The courts aren't forcing anything. The FISA court rubber-stamped the government's position when it was challenged about, uh, you know, spying against Google and Yahoo. Yahoo filed suit with the FISA court, uh, but you see the FISA court's merely a rubber stamp. But they, they have admitted under NSA spying that they haven't seen any specific information that the government presents nothing to them. They simply tell them what they've got. You can't see it. Take our word for it. And the FISA court says, okay, we'll take your word for it. I mean, this is unconscionable. This is the real crime. It's not that one branch is taking power, you know, it is that the other two are letting them get away with it. And that can only mean one thing, is that they're compromised. And they have, one of the things that NSA spying has done in this country is that they have dirt on almost every congressman out there. And uh, there are a few that are free from that, but it's very difficult for high-powered men to get that far in life without making some mistakes. And the government's been surveilling their telephone calls, making videos, of their lives, their indiscretions, all of their sins, and they blackmail most of these people. My estimate is that they've got direct control over probably 80 to 90 percent of people in Congress and about 98 percent of everybody in the higher levels of the U.S. courts, appellate courts and Supreme um, I, I use the term soft totalitarianism. Uh, uh, you know, we're not talking about uh, jack boots and brown shirts quite yet. Uh, it's very sm- more subtle, far more sophisticated. Uh, you know, some might say imperceptible, uh, unless you happen to be paying attention to the news. But uh, I, I, that's the term I use, soft totalitarianism. How would you describe the, the, the current uh, a system of governance in the United States? Well, in the first place, the Constitution is dead in the United States if you are a dissident. In other words, if you get in the way of government and they target you, you have no rights. Simply pick you up off the street, throw you in prison, don't tell anyone, and have no rights, solitary confinement, 
no lawyers, no right to call, no speedy trial, nothing. Now, if they can do that to dozens of Americans who are dissidents, and there are dozens of Americans, it means this government simply doesn't care about the country. They only use it up front to convince people that the rule of law still exists. But when they want to get away with it, they do so with impunity, and the courts will not stop them. And this is one I have a file that's just hundreds and hundreds of posts long now of folk behavior of policemen in the United States and examples for the courts. When the victims go before the courts, the courts will say, we're not going to second-guess the police if they say, you know, the, you, they felt you were a threat. But the video shows that there was no threats whatsoever when they tasered this person and they slammed the woman who was pregnant to the ground, etc. You know, we're asking the court to make it, and we will not second-guess the police. Well, if you won't second-guess the police, who will? That's the purpose of the courts. You talk about this, it, this nationalization. Government, Sorry, I was just going to say this nationalization of the of the police forces, uh, nationalization of large parts of the U.S. economy, um, this um, clampdown on, on on civil rights, suspension of habeas corpus. It does, and I I, I use the term hesitantly, but. It, uh, it sounds Hitlerian. I mean, let's take the, the you know the, the Holocaust and the anti-Semitism aside for a moment because I don't. We're not talking about that, uh, but all the other aspects sound like 1930s Germany. Well, they do, uh, Richard. And as I say, you know, in, in the only difference is that the uh, because of the man-made crises of the Weimar Republic and the inflation holes, they gave government. They gave the chancellor dictatorial powers. The parliament, the Bundestag, gave him the powers. That has not been done in the United States. It's much more sophisticated. It is a matter of the president taking the power and the Congress and the, and the courts letting him get away with it and protecting him against any and all suits that come up against them. And that's the most discouraging thing is that they can run around and say that, you know, we're declaring that NSA spying is legal because, what, the courts have approved it. Uh, Jonathan Turley, again, uh, speaking to the um, the House Judiciary Committee, warning, and this was, a, again, a liberal lawyer from, uh, you, you, you mentioned he's a socialist, a uh, liberal lawyer from Georgetown University, one would normally expect to be in the Obama fan club, uh, warning the alarms that uh, the president presents the greatest threat to the republic or to certainly to liberty. Uh, at that same um, hearing, he talked about not only the, the expansion of the power in, in the Oval Office, but the, the rise of a fourth branch of government. He's talking about these agencies. Uh, we have, for example, um, the IRS, which, is, which has, I suspect it's been used this way for many years, but now it's become more overt. And that is it's being used as a political tour, tool to target enemies of the White House, whether it's members of the, the Tea Party or whether or it's, it's uh, Christian groups and so forth. Uh, are you as worried about that aspect of this concentration of power with, with unelected bureaucrats? Well, remember that these unelected bureaucrats are an extension of the executive branch, so I do not view this as an independent fourth branch that has a life of its own. These branches, in fact, are controlled by the same globalist handlers that control the puppet presidents, like Bush. These are, Obama's not giving the orders to these people. Obama was just as surprised to find out, you know, about them targeting, because they were targeting during the Bush administration and the Reagan administration. 
I was in Washington during the Reagan administration. And conservative groups were getting audited even under the Reagan administration. And that's because a president doesn't really control the country. It's too big. He has to rely on all of these entrenched uh, people. And um, it's not just bureaucrats. It's people from the Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, who have got into governments, who stay in governments. In fact, they have Team A and B. Team A plays with the Republicans, Team B, but they're both working for the same globalist agenda. And, for example, the EPA is just running rampant around the world. Uh, in the United States, you know, uh, condemning coal and, and in the name of global warming, uh, condemning wholesale manufacturing processes and started to impose these taxes and things. And the Supreme Court ruled, in fact, Turley mentioned this, that uh, agencies could actually define their own and interpret their own jurisdiction. So you see, the court is actually letting them get it, giving them a green light. And if Turley were half the lawyer he claims to be, he would have been equally condemning of the Congress who was interviewing him as he would have been the Supreme Court for not doing the job. But it's all too easy to simply talk about the imperial presidency when, in fact, it's the entire system. And that's why I keep telling conservatives, uh, Richard, and I said, Obama is not the problem. It's the globalists behind him which give him the orders because they will be controlling Chris Christie when he's the next president and every other president after that. It's the underlying system that is our problem, not the public figureheads which we think we get rid of and solve the problem. Joel Skousen, editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief, is uh, with us. Uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, talked about uh, the American citizens' right to alter their government or uh, even use uh, revolution to overthrow it. Um, I mean, is that in the cards? I mean, how close are we uh, to to the American citizenry simply saying enough is enough and, and rising up? I mean, is a revolution possible? It isn't until you start to really inconvenience the majority of people. And the government is very slick about not doing that, um, or at least lessening the pressure as soon as it does rise to the, uh, that level. But, you know, even among conservatives, probably only 20% are strongly enough attached to the Constitution to understand the threats to liberty that they'd be willing to take strong action. And probably only 10% of that 20% would be willing to go to fight for liberty and, and revolution. So it's a very small percentage reality, even though we have a strong uh, alternative news network. We're very vocal, vocal. But when you look at the masses of people who are relatively satisfied, a majority who votes Democratic now or votes for their benefits, and a large majority who are dissatisfied but wouldn't even come close to threatening their income stream, um, as in the Revolutionary War days, to take strong action against government. You have to have a unified, hostile people who are being threatened by a foreign government, as we did in the Revolution, against Britain. And it must be unreformable. What happens when it's your own government? And part of our problem in America is we have revered our government who hides behind the shield of law, hides behind the shield of the Constitution, that we are honoring law. We believe in the rule of law, and they're just simply lying. They believe in using the rule of law to fool people. But when they want to do something against the rule, they just do it with impunity, whether it's the killing of citizens, whether it's the denial of a speedy trial, or locking people up in solitary confinement. It happens all the time in America now, with the exploitation of uh, people to be tortured elsewhere. 
has happened to your Canadian sister uh, system, uh, Mr. Arar. Yes, in Syria. Um, what right. what will be that unifying force? Uh, what I look at the situation in Detroit, for example. Here's a country or here's a city, uh, which is sort of a microcosm for America, completely insolvent, um, and 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 uh, their unfunded liabilities. They can no longer you know deliver uh, pensions to employees. So instead of receiving uh, one hundred thousand uh, dollars, a pensioner will receive maybe sixteen thousand, or if they're getting eight. Fifty thousand, they'll get eight thousand. Uh, think about what the what that's going to do to the consumer spending going forward in Detroit. I don't know how that city's going to function going forward. But again, that's kind of a microcosm, I think, uh, for what lies ahead. You know, jurisdiction after jurisdiction, whether it's Stockton, California, Chicago, next, uh, you name it. The United States is insolvent. Is that going to be when those roosters? Or those, when they come home to roost, when the roosters come home to roost, the chickens come home to roost, is that going to be the, the unifying force that's going to, to, uh, to get Americans thinking about, you know, just chucking the whole system and starting over? Well, that's a complex uh, question. The problem is uh, that these people we're dealing with who are running the system, who control the Fed, who control this money, they can keep this thing limping along with, uh, inputs of money, as long as they don't exceed 10% uh, inflation rate, and they keep this thing milking along. And what I fear, though, what I've long projected as a geopolitical strategist, is they're taking us into a third world war uh, in, sometime in the next decade, and they'll walk away the heroes. The system will go down because of the war, and they will escape blame. If they were to pull the plug, uh, you know, and pull the money supply and the system would come down, yeah, we'd have true insolvency and they would get the blame. But I think they're too smart for that. All right, Joe, got to cut it there. Always a pleasure. Worldaffairsbrief.com to subscribe to your fabulous newsletter. Thanks, Joel. Thank you, Rich. Ron Patton, Paranoia Magazine. Does the Department of Hom- Homeland Security have a kill switch? We'll find out. Stay with us. Hey, welcome back. Uh, this month... The United States District Court for the District of Columbia ruled that the Department of Homeland Security must make its plan to shut off the Internet and cell phone communications available to the American public. Wait, 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 full stop. What's that you say? The Department of Homeland Security has plans to shut off the Internet and cell phone communications? Uh, wow. <laughs> That's, uh, how did that one slip by us, you say? Uh, it's interesting because President Obama, uh, of course, was very vocal when ousted Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak turned off the Internet in his country in order to quell widespread civil disobedience back in 2011. And now, apparently, we're finding out the U.S. government has the authority to do the same sort of thing under a plan that was devised during the George W. Bush administration. Uh, Many of the details of this uh, controversial, they're calling it a kill switch, uh, kill switch authority. Uh, Most of the details have been classified, such as the conditions under which it can be implemented and how the switch can be used. Uh, But then, thanks to the good old Freedom of Information Act, um, which was filed by the Electronic Privacy Information Center, the Department, Department of Homeland Security has to reveal those details. Uh, originally, it was by December 12th, and I believe they have uh, successfully lobbied, lobbied the courts, and they now have until January 
to reveal their plans for this kill switch authority to the public. Well, here to tell us more about what this kill switch authority is all about is the publisher of Paranoia Magazine, the world's most popular conspiracy journal, Ron Patton. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing pretty well, just getting over a nasty cold, but uh, it's been great weather here in San Diego. Well, glad to have you with us, Ron. Uh, let's um, let's talk about this uh, this kill switch. I mean, this caught many of us up here, uh, up in the Great White North, by surprise. Uh, and I guess if it weren't for this Freedom of Information Act um, uh, endeavor uh, by these folks at the Electronic Privacy um, Organization, we wouldn't know anything about this. What, what are you hearing about this kill switch? Is this this isn't a hoax, right? This is legitimate. There. The Department of Homeland Security wants the ability to shut off all cell phone communication and the Internet at their whim. Uh, indeed, they do. It, it's something that's quite legitimate. Um, I was reading about it recently, and they actually have a, something that's called the Standard Operating Procedure 303, which essentially allows a shutdown and a restoration process for the use by commercial and private wireless networks during uh, a national crisis. But, you know, like a lot of very suspicious things the Department of Homeland does, uh, it just sort of, like, begs the question, you know, why are they doing this? I mean, by it, it just doesn't make sense. And I think their, their justification, from what I've read, was so that uh, there are certain types of electronic devices that won't detonate a certain type of dirty bombs. But, you know, that's just so outlandish, and it's it's just not very practical at all. Well, this is something uh, we would we would tend to think of. Well, we, we, we talked about Egypt and how Hosni Mubarak, uh, President Mubarak, did this uh, to, in order to quell sort of the civil uh, uprising back in 2011. Uh, mm-hmm. And and the president uh, at that time was very vocal in opposition, and now apparently they're contemplating the same thing. We might even think that they might do this something like this in 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 communist China, um, but not in the United States. I mean, is this even legal? Well, I mean, they they can definitely make it legal. Um, I think there's uh, the, the Telecommunications Act, which you know originally came out in 1934, and then it was amended in 1996, and essentially it gives the, the president the, the ability to shut off the internet or cell phones or any type of uh, uh, wireless um, activity, radios, so forth, under the guise of a uh, national emergency. But um, I personally think it's just sort of a means to uh, just stifle communication between citizens when there is civil unrest or when there's something that comes down under the guise of national security. All right, Ron. I think uh, a lot of, and I'm finding that um, a lot of people are, are also feeling the same sediment. All right, Ron, stay with us. We'll take a time out. Come back. Ron Patton, publisher of Paranoia Magazine, as we talk about the Department of Homeland Security's plan for a kill switch uh, authority which has been so far classified. We'll find out about it next month, exactly what that entails. But will the Department of Homeland Security actually exercise this authority?
to shut off cell phone and internet communication when they deem it necessary. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Ron Patton is with us, the publisher of Paranoia Magazine. Ron, before we proceed, how can folks get their hands on uh, one of your delicious magazines? Well, they can go to www.paranoiamagazine.com. And uh, right now we have our fall issue out, and I'm presently working on the uh, winter 2014 issue. Yeah, just go to paranoiamagazine.com. And I also want to inform you and, and the listeners that I just recently opened up a conspiracy store here in San Diego, and it's the only conspiracy store on the West Coast that I'm aware of. So, Ah, well, congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm selling magazines, books, uh, T-shirts, etc. So I'm really excited about it. All right, well, good luck with that. So thank back you. to the kill switch. Um, you mentioned uh, that... Um, this is not anything new, in fact, uh, the idea of the U.S. sort of assuming control over communications. You mentioned uh, 1934, I think it was, President Roosevelt signed the Communications Act, uh, which allowed the president uh, this power, I guess, if there existed war or a threat of war. Uh, and you can imagine you know, why, uh, for example, if, if someone on the West Coast had a, a shortwave radio or, and they were communicating with the enemy and so forth, this could, could pose a problem. Uh, so one, one could almost see some rationale for it. And before that, in, in fact, in 1918, apparently, there was a congressional joint resolution. It allowed the president to assume control over the U.S. telegraph system. So that was sort of a precursor to this. But um, you were mentioning that the, the, the cell phone could be used, a particular channel could be used to set off some sort of a dirty bomb or whatever. How, how would that work? Um, I really don't quite understand the uh, technicalities behind it, but uh, apparently if there's a certain type of frequency that's um, used by a cell phone or another type of electrical device, it can easily detonate any type of bomb or, you know, what they refer to as uh, dirty bombs. Um, so has that occurred a lot throughout the world? I don't believe so. Um, I haven't really heard that, you know, being a, a really big issue or a big problem per se. But my um, gut feeling is it's just simply an, an excuse to have, you know, more powers over the citizens and, again, trying to constrain their ability to communicate with one another, especially if we do have civil unrest in, in, uh, under any type of scenario, whether it's something that's a natural disaster or something that's man-made. Uh, shutting down the cell phone systems, to me, would seem, you know, relatively simple compared to the internet let but in order to do that uh the the uh the government the united states the department of homeland security what have you would have to have some sort of agreement with the the all the major telecom companies would they not um i believe so but i i think that's been you know been going on actually for several years especially with uh Verizon and, uh, you know, the National Security Agency and, uh, you know, other, other uh, municipalities and, and bureaucracies 
so it's actually been they've been in collusion with one another for a while and uh you know they've also been running these like test models too in case you know certain scenarios take place where the uh you know i think we talked about this a few months ago what it happens if the electric grid um goes down yes um so i think this is something that's uh, very relevant to that um so there's also something i believe it's called a uh, section 706 of of this uh presidential act and so essentially it's a war emergency act so if the president deems it necessary in the interest of national security he can suspend or amend and any rules for any of the stations or devices capable of emitting these electromagnetic magnetic, excuse me, electromagnetic radiation. And that's within, again, that set spectrum, whatever that frequency might be. What, well, let's talk about the Internet, because to me that would seem maybe a little more difficult to, to, uh, to shut that off, or would it? I mean, is, there's not one uh, sort of red button, you know, uh, easy button, a kill switch that can shut off the Internet, I'm guessing. I mean, how would that happen? Well, I mean, you look at all the, the different Internet providers, you know, that are out there, and I'm sure that uh, uh, there's been a lot of the, the different government agencies, especially Homeland Security and uh, the National Security Agency. Um, you know, they've been working with, uh, let's say, um, businesses like Google, for instance. And I think a lot of people realize that, uh, you know, what's going on out in Utah with the National Security Agency and Google and Adobe. And, you know, they're all working basically um, in concert with one another. So I don't think it would really be that difficult to shut down all those different, you know, Internet providers. One has, to, the, uh, one has to ask, though, uh, whether it's – let's for a, for a moment uh, presume that there is some sort of a, 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 a threat – to the United mm-hmm. States, uh, a right. terror threat, or um, mm-hmm. someone they, they suspect is going to set off a dirty bomb or uh, launch an EMP attack and shut down the grid. It would seem to me uh, that an internet kill switch, for example, could do more harm than good. I mean, consider the amount of, uh, of the infrastructure that is internet dependent. It, the infrastructure runs on the internet. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> aren't you going to do more harm than good? Well, my belief is that a lot of these different agencies have already set up their own uh, communication systems. So it really wouldn't be detrimental to them. It would be more, again, detrimental to um, the public who utilize these type of services to communicate with one another. So I know for a fact that the Department of Homeland Security has been setting up their own communication systems as well as other agencies. So I think, uh, no, I don't think that would uh, curtail their, you know, ability to uh, be able to respond to emergency situations at all. Uh, and and uh, cell phones. I mean, we all we all can appreciate how cell phones are, are valuable in times of, of crisis. Uh, so cutting that off. Uh, I would think would be potentially very dangerous. Maybe not to uh, to the government and those working for the government at that level, but certainly to the ordinary citizen. Not to have a cell phone in a time of crisis uh, right. would be would be and, terrible. And even, 
and and even um, let's say um, law enforcement in general. I don't know if they have that infrastructure that's already set up to be able to do that. My personal feeling, it's the, the larger agencies, again, like uh, Department of Homeland Security, um, National Security Agency, FBI, CIA, you know, some of the major ones. Um, but let's say are, are just our regular municipalities, I, they're the ones that are really going to suffer if there is indeed a, a, a crisis out there. I was just reading here on a, an article on Mother Jones online uh, that in 2005, shortly after suicide bombers attacked the London Tube, federal authorities and the United States disabled cell networks in four major New York tunnels. The action was reportedly taken to prevent bomb detonation via cell phone, and according to the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee review, it was undertaken without prior notice to wireless carriers or the public. So they do have that uh, capability, and they have used it before. So this kill switch is real. Uh, but I, I would imagine, though, that if the De- Department of Homeland Security uh, has some sort of a kill switch, it would be far more grand in scale. They'd, they'd, be, they'd be thinking about something on a national scale, I'm guessing. Right. And I think um, that particular scenario you were talking about was simply just sort of a – they were just running sort of a test model to see actually how – the response would be, and uh, you know that was obviously on a limited basis. But uh, again, if if this does take place and there is this internet kill switch that does come about, uh, and comes about unabated, um, it could be very devastating for uh, a lot of us. And, and what happens to things like the First Amendment? For crying out loud! I mean, if you've got uh, a government agency like the Department of Homeland Security with no other oversight. There's no court, you know, uh, in, in the loop here where you can appeal. Uh, if this is all being done in secret and they're cutting off the Internet, which is obviously uh, a wonderful form to exercise the First Amendment, I mean, what happens to that? Well, I mean, they can do any of this kind of stuff under the auspices of the National Security Act. And so, um, you know, again, they can either create a false flag operation to, to make this happen. And I don't think it's going to be something that uh, I think it will happen um, when it's going to happen. It's hard to say, but I think it's going to be just for a limited basis. You know, it, it's a process of gradualism. They can't just do something like that overnight and just shut down the internet and for an indefinite period of time. But I think there are going to be intermittent um, periods where the internet will be shut off for different reasons. Um, and so we'll just see basically how it plays out. I mean, are you My, frightened by this prospect? Are you worried about this prospect that the Department of Homeland Security will have this kill switch? Well, of course I am. I mean, like for myself personally, I mean, I utilize the internet to be able to do a lot of research, and uh, you know, it's a it's a major part of my business to be able to to correspond with my writers and other researchers. So, uh, but I think overall, it's just going to be devastating for um, you know a lot of people. Um, 
for different reasons. Well, and, hopefully uh, in January, uh, according to this, uh, the District Court of Columbia, uh, this court order, the DHS has to reveal details of this kill switch authority uh, sometime in January. So we'll know then, um, you know, exactly what, uh, how they intend to use it, why, under what circumstances they will use it. Uh, not that uh, I suspect that's going to let us, uh, you know, rest any easier. I think it's going to be pretty frightening either way. Right. Um, and I, I guess to, for myself personally, after I've kind of researched this, it, it just seems like, well, if these particular agencies can develop their own communication systems, why can't um, citizens like ourselves develop our own networks or what they call peer-to-peer networks? It's almost like pirate-type networks. Um, and, you know, the ham operators have been doing something like this for years and years. But to me, that might be, um, you know, a possibility. Is it something that's practical? Maybe not too practical, but I think there are going to be some individuals that will have the ability to basically put up their own towers or utilize towers and set up their own uh, communication systems that are not connected to the Internet. All right, Ron. Well, we'll look forward to uh, to finding out more when this all comes down in January. And in the meantime, thanks so much for your time tonight. Ron Patton, publisher of Paranoia Magazine. Thank you, my friend. I thank you so much, Richard. Have a good evening. Have a good evening. A kill switch. Well, um, whoever was responsible for shutting down my website, uh, congratulations, but uh, it'll be short-lived, a short-lived victory. Uh, we are working fast and furiously, as, as, as fast as humanly possible, to get richardserrett.com back up and running, new and improved. In the meantime, you can say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, and as always, follow the truth. Hey, friends. Uh, welcome once again to new affiliate KSET, AM 1300 in Beaumont, Texas. That is, I believe, our second affiliate down in uh, the great Republic of Texas. Did you know Texas is a republic? I was down there a couple of years ago uh, visiting uh, Dealey Plaza and then uh, met up later in the day with uh, Jim Mars, who's one of the granddaddies of JFK assassination research. Met him up at his home, uh, walk in uh, Jim's uh, front door, and what's hanging on the, on the, on the tree uh, rack, or, or the hat tree, rather, what do you call that, a, a hat tree or a coat tree? just inside the front door, is a holster with a six-shooter. And I said to myself, welcome to Texas. That's Jim. And then Jim Mars went on to uh, lecture me on uh, how Texas is, in fact, a republic, and it is the only state in the union which has the legal right uh, to secede, uh, basically whenever it wants. And, uh, you know, rumblings down there in certain parts of Texas that that's exactly what they like to do. Also, in northern Colorado, well, northern Colorado... Uh, wants to secede from southern Colorado. Uh, and uh, at various times, I think, there were sites in, in uh, New, New Hampshire or Vermont wanting to secede. Uh, so it's not just up here in Canada and Quebec um, or occasionally in, uh, in Alberta that we hear rumblings of separation. Uh, I always have to laugh, though, when, whenever Quebec uh, up here in Canada is talking about uh, uh, separating from the rest of Canada, I always say to Quebec, if you leave, will you take us with you? <laughs> So maybe I'm a separatist at heart. I don't know. I just think smaller is better, right? I don't like big, monolithic uh, governments. All right, enough about that. 
Uh, just uh, Tim uh, Spreen is buzzing my, in my ear. We're, uh, we're trying to reach Rosemary Ellen, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, uh, who joins us the second Sunday of every month, and uh, that would be now, uh, to talk about things paranormal and supernatural. And uh, she, I know she's normally in Connecticut. She's out on the West Coast uh, touring out there. Uh, so we're trying to reach her. We were going to talk about encounters with angels. And, of course, angels are everywhere at, uh, during the Christmas season. Uh, you see them on holiday cards and wrapping paper and gifts and store, to plays, uh, store displays. Uh, however, some people will tell you that the presence of angels is much more tangible, uh, unexplained and more miraculous than most of us uh, realize. And um, from time to time on this program, I have opened up the phone lines and uh, had people call in and talk about their angelic encounters. And perhaps we can do that now in the absence of Rosemary Ellen Guiley while we, uh, while we reach out to her. And hopefully at some point in this half hour, Rosemary will join us. Uh, but why don't we do that in the early going? Angelic encounters or encounters with angels, which seems to be most apropos of the season. We'll make the phone lines available to you. Let me give you a heads up what's going on a little bit later. Uh, every two weeks, as promised, Nelson Thal, media scientist, archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan, stops by to deliver state secrets, his own brand of uh, news that you won't hear on the mainstream media. State secrets with Nelson Thal happens at the, uh, the bottom of the hour. Uh, and then... I was going to talk about uh, John Lennon towards the, uh, the tail end of the program. Of course, we are now uh, into December the 9th. Lennon was killed December the 8th. However, he was killed December the 9th, UK time. Uh, a lot of number nines floating around the late Beatle. He was born on October the 9th. He died December the 9th, UK time. Of course, his, um, his song, Number Nine Dream, which I believe was released on the, I think that was, was that Walls and Bridges album or maybe one prior to that? And uh, Revolution Number Nine, of course, from the White Album. I've got some uh, interesting stories to, to uh, discuss or share with you a little bit later in the program, time permitting. Uh, we may even get to that sooner if we don't uh, connect with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Uh, but why don't we talk about uh, angelic encounters at Christmas until the bottom of the hour. I um, have heard from a number of people who claim to have had some sort of an angelic encounter uh, in the car just prior to some sort of an automobile accident. Uh, they claim they've been actually saved from certain death uh, because of some sort of angelic intervention. Uh, one individual told me, uh, not too long ago, um, that he was driving along uh, sort of a lonely country road and uh, was late at night and uh, was very sleepy. He started to fall asleep. He actually did fall asleep at the wheel uh, and woke up. Uh, he, had, he felt as if he had been shaken. Someone had grabbed him around the, the shoulders, and shook him. 
And he actually woke up and, his, and he was uh, obviously startled by this and uh, woke up just in time to prevent the car from careening off the road and uh, hitting a, a large tree. And he was traveling at a pretty good clip down this country road, 70, 80 kilometers, so 50 miles an hour in that range. Uh, and had he not suddenly, and, and for no you know, obvious reason, would he have woken up at this particular point? But again, the sensation that he was physically shaken by someone or something. Was that perhaps an encounter with an angel? This individual seemed to think so. And they do seem to be, these angelic encounters, more prominent at this time of year. Now, if um, that doesn't grab you, encounters with angels, something else that we can do uh, till the bottom of the hour, we'll talk about John Lennon. Now, Tim, I gave you a couple of clips. Uh, I don't know if you have any of those at the ready, but um, maybe you can work on getting those ready. And I'll just tell you a little bit of a story here. I was going to do this later in the hour. We'll do it now. Uh, December 8th, 1980, I was 16. And uh, my best friend at the time and I had just discovered the Beatles, a little bit late in the game perhaps, uh, Tom Balin. I don't know if he's out there listening. Hello, Tom. Uh, back in Brantford, Ontario. And we had uh, recently just been on a um, uh, high school trip to Toronto. And we visited Sam the Record Man. This was the big pilgrimage to uh, Toronto. And uh, it was one of the first albums I ever, I ever purchased. It was the, uh, the, uh, the Capitol Records collection or EMI, I guess, co- collection of the Beatles. It was a blue, a double blue album uh, from their hits from 1967 to 1970, and a reissue of all their hits from 67 to 70 or 66 to 70, my mistake. And uh, so Tom and I had this album. I had it or he had it, I don't know. But we played, we played the heck out of that thing. I mean, every night I was at, I was at his house or he was at my house, and we were playing. The Beatles, again, just discovered them, and about this time, uh, this was this was uh, about the uh, the spring of 1980, and um, it was only about this time that uh, you know there was rumors that John Lennon was going to end his sort of exile uh, in obscurity and reemerge from the Dakota and start recording again, and I was so thrilled and so excited about this. So Monday, December eighth, 1980. I'm at Tom Balin's house in his parents' basement. And again, we've got the Monday Night Football game, the Monday Night Football on. But we had the sound turned down because we were more interested in listening to the Beatles that we had just discovered. And so again, we're playing this, uh, this Beatle album, 1966 19 to 1970, singing along, as I remember, not realizing that while we were singing, if we had the TV turned on, we would have heard Howard Cassell on Monday Night Football say this. John Smith is on the line, and I don't care what's on the line, Howard. You have got to say what we know in the book. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. 
hard to go back to the game after that news flash, which in duty bound we have to take. Frank. Indeed it is. And there you go. That was the call, uh, Howard Cosell's call, Monday Night Football, Miami Dolphins playing in the Orange Bowl that night against the New England Patriots. And again, we were watching the game, had the sound turned down. I went home that night singing the Beatles to myself, not realizing that Lennon, my hero, had been slain. Now, uh, many years later, I was on another radio station interviewing a gentleman from... I want to say Chatham or Windsor, Ontario, uh, who had written a book about the life and times of, uh, of John Lennon and some of the interesting foreshadowing uh, in, in, in Lennon's life. And one of the most interesting things he told me was, okay, think back again to the, uh, the Monday night football game. They're in Miami at the Orange Bowl. Okay, they're in Miami at the Orange Bowl. Miami is playing New England. It was during that game that we found out Lennon died. Now, let's play a little bit of the first track from the White Album. Can we do that? The first track, it's back in the, U- back in the USSR. Let's hear a little bit of that. You heard that opening lyric, flew in from Miami Beach, all right? So, all right, coincidence, right? First track of the White Album, the first track, back in the USSR, flew into Miami Beach. Again, the game is in the Orange Bowl in Miami. Now, the last track of the White Album is not so much a song. It's kind of a sound collage, uh, and it's called Revolution Number no. Nine. There's that number nine again. Interesting. Let's just hear a little bit of the uh, the, the the sound collage. The last track of the White Album, Revolution Number no. Nine. Number 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 nine, number nine, number nine. nine. Okay. When we come back, I'll tell you about what's going on towards the tail end of that song. Dream number nine and how that foreshadows what happened at that Monday night football game. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. I just wanted to wrap this up very quickly, and then Rosemary Ellen Guiley has joined us, and we'll talk about angelic encounters. Uh, the book I was referring to uh, regarding sort of the, the foreshadowing uh, in, uh, in the music of John Lennon is to be found in a book called Once a Man, Twice a Child. And the author is Dan Alice, who I've uh, talked to a number of times, and he resides uh, here in southern Ontario. Uh, anyway, as I was saying, we, we learned about Lennon's death, many of us, on the Monday Night Football game. Howard Cassell announcing during a broadcast of a Miami Dolphin football game at the Orange Bowl in Miami. And again, first track of the White Album is back in the USSR with the lyrics, flew into Miami Beach. Now, just before the break, I played the last track 
of the uh, the White Album, which is Revolution Number no. Nine, kind of a sound collage. Well, if you listen for it, I believe it's around the five minute mark. You'll hear in the sound collage, obviously they were recording at a a football or a soccer match, as they call it here, but a football match in England, or perhaps a rugby match. Uh, You can hear the crowd erupt in this chorus saying, block that kick, block that kick. Okay, so let's go back to Miami and the Orange Bowl, the game against the, the Dolphins and the Patriots. The New England Patriots, shortly before Cosell's announcement, New England had just scored a touchdown. And they were just preparing to kick the two-point conversion. Just before Cassell goes on the air, and New England is about to kick the two-point conversion, what do you think the Orange Bowl erupts in? The, the entire crowd, the Orange Bowl, is saying, you've got it. Block that kick. Block that kick. There you go. A little bit of interesting foreshadowing. Uh, and again, that's uh, found in Once a Man, Twice a Child by Dan Alice. Uh, very fascinating uh, look uh, regarding the prophecy of John Lennon's death. All right. Let's talk now about angels. Very appropriate for uh, the Christmas season. And uh, always happy to welcome our uh, resident paranormal expert, the author of nearly 50 books, many of them major encyclopedic works dealing with the metaphysical, the supernatural, the paranormal. And I, of course, speak about the one and only Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Hey, Rosemary, we tracked you down. How are you? Oh, yes, I'm glad we connected, Richard. Well, uh, just arrived out here in California for a couple of weeks and, uh, uh, you know, jet lag and all that. (laughs) Well... Uh, you were very anxious to talk to me about uh, angels, and I thought well, it's a perfect topic for this time of year, and angelic encounters. And, and I was mentioning off the top, you know, uh, angels are everywhere in uh, in pop culture these days, especially this time of year, Christmas cards, wrapping paper, uh, gifts, and so forth. Uh, but w- we brought you on to talk about actual real-life angelic encounters. And are they more are they more common at Christmas time, or do we just pay more attention to them then? We just pay more attention to them at this time of year, but they go on all the time. And um, I've written, uh, I think, now seven books on angels, and uh, this is a topic that's always been of interest to me since some of my own earliest uh, experiences involved angels. And uh, I've seen our popular interest go in waves. Uh, And right now, interest in angels is rising again, and I think it's because of all the troubled times around the world, and uh, the fact that people are still having economic trouble, and a lot of uncertainty in personal lives, and uh, in our concerns about global situations, and um, natural weather disasters, and things like that. Whenever people feel insecure or uncertain, especially about their future, um, it's natural to look toward the divine for help, and so interest in angels resurges. Uh, but they're around all the time, and uh, I think that they help people in many ways, and certainly if we pay attention to angels and we um, establish contact with the angelic realm and ask for their help, they're even more present in our lives. Tell me about your so encounters, Rosemary. It's actually Rosemary. kind of a wonderful Christmas present to give yourself to uh, to think about angels and uh, having them be involved in your life. You mentioned uh, that that you had uh, very early on encounters with angels, and perhaps that's what set you on 
uh, your career as an investigator of the supernatural and paranormal. What, 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 what were these experiences? Tell me about them. Well, when I was a kid, uh, and I thought it, it was the most natural thing, and when I would go to sleep at night, I would feel angels around me, and, and they would sing to me. And it was a heavenly choir. Um, I didn't see them visually, but I knew they were around, and I knew they were angels. Uh, and I was very certain of this as a kid. And I thought this was the most natural thing, and it happened to everyone. Well, it doesn't happen to everyone. Uh, and that's one of the things that really got me going about the paranormal when I got older was the fact that people have different experiences, and some people never have an experience that someone else does. Well, a lot of people have encounters with beings that they feel are angels at some point in their lives. Um, and quite often it involves a crisis situation, uh, and the angel is the messenger of the divine. It's the intervention of the hand of God, and it comes through the messenger of the angel. And sometimes it's as a mysterious stranger. Sometimes it's in a vision like an apparition, uh, where you, you see a form that uh, you intuitively know is angelic. And, and sometimes it's just a sense of a presence where people feel guided and comforted, and uh, it's, it's a palpable presence, but is not seen. My um, knowledge, I guess, which is you know a mile wide and an inch deep, deep, deep uh, concerning angels, uh, comes from the Bible. And, and when I think of angels, I don't think of, uh, you know, something that's cherubic or like a baby or cute, you know, with wings. I think of kind of an, a, a frightening experience. I mean, whenever bi- angels are mentioned in the Bible, you know, the first thing that the angel says to the person is, be not afraid. Um, so, I mean, encountering an angel back then, I think, must have been a very tra- traumatic frightening experience if the angels constantly having to tell people be not afraid so what what, i mean you're absolutely right richard and our biblical ancestors were terrified if angels showed up because the average person was did not expect to encounter an angel unless god sent an angel usually to discipline them if god was unhappy with you then he might send an angel to uh, punish you or discipline you or warn you and uh, they were very uh, formidable encounters where uh, these beings had a tremendous amount of energy, a very powerful presence, and people were automatically um, taken aback by it. So we've definitely changed our attitudes toward angels and uh, our beliefs about the circumstances under which we encounter them. And the other uh, sort of, I don't know, misconception uh, that, that I think is out there, and you can disabuse me of this, is that we, we a lot of people tend to think that angels are people that have passed on, that got some sort of a, pr- a promotion. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say something to the effect of, when so-and-so died, I'm sure they became an angel. But my understanding is that angels are were created, uh, they're a created order, quite different from humans. They were created separately according to the Bible, and uh, they have their own uh, their own track, so to speak, like human beings do. They're concerned with the maintenance of cosmic order, and that includes uh, dealing with us as well as everything else in the cosmos. Um, it is, however, a belief that many people have that uh, their departed loved ones have become guardian angels for them, and. 
I, I look upon it as um, the person becomes like an angel. And uh, this seems to be a choice that some people can make uh, after they pass over, that they elect to remain close to their loved ones uh, who are still living and to be present for them in that sort of protective, guiding way. But, but they're not angels. Now, a departure from that uh, was the philosophy of Emanuel Swedenborg, who was um, a mystic. And uh, he did out-of-body travels and uh, had many out-of-body journeys to heaven and uh, also some to the hellish regions. But he was of the opinion that human souls could evolve into angels. But um, that's not a widely held view in spiritual philosophy. What do these things look like? I mean, I'm not talking now about the guardian angels, which you say are not necessarily angels, but they may be a loved one who wants to stay close to us and watch over us. But the I'm talking about the cherubim and the seraphim from the Bible. I mean, these these creatures, uh, if I can call them that, I mean, they had, they're described as having, you know, multiple eyes and multiple faces and, and uh, you know, quite scary, really. But what do... What do angels look like in your estimation? The most common experience we have of angels is as a pillar of light. Very few people actually see wings on angels, and that was really an artistic interpretation of angels going back to ancient times when artists uh, in the emerging um, church were allowed to portray angels. Um, They adopted... uh, an earlier custom of putting wings on gods and goddesses, which were symbolic of being able to access the heavens, which was, of course, up there in the sky. And uh, angels really don't need wings. They are forms of energy. And uh, some of the biblical encounters where they have these multiple faces, multiple eyes, uh, and this um, intense, fiery presence... Uh, yes, they, I think they can be quite formidable. The times that I have visually seen angels, uh, it is as a pillar of light, and the light is so brilliant that you can't look at it directly. You have to avert your vision. And uh, I'm assuming that this energy is stepped way, way down, uh, even to that level, in order uh, for human senses to perceive it. It is said that the angels who are much closer to God, like the uh, cherubim and the seraphim, uh, are so refined and subtle in their energy that we humans would not be able to perceive their form. And uh, they have to reduce their energy and trickle it down through the lower orders of angels uh, in order for it to arrive at a sensory level where we can take it in and uh, appreciate it. Tell, talk to me about the, uh, I guess, the uh, the angelic order or the hierarchy. We, we hear a lot about Gabriel, for example. He appears in Daniel. He, he, he shows up talking to Mary uh, and Elizabeth. Uh, the Muslims uh, say that Gabriel appeared to Muhammad and, and revealed the Koran. Uh, uh, Gabriel apparently uh, appeared to Joan of Arc. So obviously Gabriel is important to all three uh, Abrahamic uh, faiths. But, I mean, aside from Gabriel, uh, you know, walk us through the hierarchy. Well, actually, there are a number of hierarchies, and uh, we have one that's nine-tiered, 
which was uh, developed around the uh, 6th century and is attributed to um, uh, an author named Pseudo-Dionysius, who actually might have been a collection of anonymous uh, writers involved in uh, the evolution of the angelic hierarchy. But there uh, have been other visionaries who have seen 10-tiered structures, 12-tiered structures. Um, We have always perceived angels, the bottom line is we've always perceived them as organized into some sort of hierarchy with duties and powers. And at the very lowest level is the angel. Uh, And this is the being who would be like the guardian angel, uh, the angels who... Uh, we are most likely to encounter in our daily affairs on, here on Earth. And the more important angels, like Gabriel, um, are the archangels, the second level up, and um, they deal with bigger picture sorts of things. Uh, and there are a very limited number of them that have been named in uh, sacred text. Who knows how many there are? There are as many angels as are necessary, According to some views, we don't really know how many there are, but um, in uh, some of the texts it said that there are seven angels who stand can stand in the presence of God, and that these would be, uh, you know, the archangels. And their names vary according to different texts. And then above that, uh, we've had organizations of um, structures where the angels start to take on bigger and bigger picture roles. Uh, after the uh, archangels, we have the dominions, the virtues, and the powers uh, who would be uh, concerned with uh, high-level ethics and morals, the right use of authority, the governing of nations, the affairs of the planet, uh, that sort of scale. And in the upper tier, the thrones, the cherubim, and the seraphim uh, would be angels that human beings would rarely interact with because their focus is on um, the the divine and the the seed of God and very high-level cosmic dealings. These would be very high-level, high-energy frequency beings uh, who would not really be concerned with the daily affairs of human beings. That would be left to the lower levels of angels. All right, I'll jump in here, uh, Rosemary. We'll take a time out, come back, just uh, a few moments remain. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, author of Ask the Angels and the Encyclopedia of Angels. Stay with us. Welcome back. State Secrets with Nelson Thal is uh, coming up. We just delayed that a little bit. We've uh, been joined by Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and we're discussing encounters with angels. And I didn't realize, uh, Rosemary, this actually has a name. Angelophanies? Is that that how it's it's referred? Yes, angelophany is um, an encounter with an angel, an experience of an angel. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of people have them during times of crisis. And uh, they may actually be visited by someone, uh, an angel who takes a human form. It's called the mysterious stranger. And uh, this is someone who makes a sudden appearance, uh, knows what to do to uh, rectify a situation, and then they depart, and they're never found. Uh, When people try and track them down to thank them because they think they've been aided by a real person, they discover that no such person can be found or exists. Do you have any of those types of uh, encounters that uh, you've investigated? 
I do. In fact, I did a whole book uh, on that, uh, which is available online as an ebook called uh, Christmas Angels, uh, True Stories of Hope and Healing. And uh, they all have a Christmas theme to them, but most of them are mysterious stranger stories where people have been lost, for example, their car breaks down and um, they, uh, they have, you know, they're stranded in a, a, a remote area. Um, mysterious stranger shows up walking down the road, um, fixes the car, and, and then leaves. And these, these, uh, mysterious strangers always look different. They're, they have kind of a radiance about them. They often have very intense, brilliant eyes. They might be a very brilliant blue. They don't say a whole lot. They just show up and fix things. Um, and um, uh, they have shown up to help people who've been hurt in accidents. Uh, I have stories of um, uh, angels uh, averting car accidents uh, and um, helping people who've been injured and who are by themselves. Uh, It's quite amazing uh, how the angelic rescue help so many of us. And I think uh, some people may not even realize they've been helped by an angel. They think they, they just got lucky. You mentioned, uh, you also write about how, how uh, most often these angels that take human form are usually male, sort of fresh-looking, clean-cut youth, and invariably well-dressed, polite, and knowledgeable. Yes, and uh, they have this kind of shininess to them, like... Um, a glow to them, and uh, uh, they are often uh, a, a youthful-looking male. And uh, sometimes they might um, have kind of a curious appearance about them, like really curly hair, something like that. There are female mysterious strangers, and uh, many accounts of those occur in hospitals uh, where people uh, need aid, and they think they're being helped by a nurse, for example. And then they discover that no such person exists in that facility uh, by that description. So uh, I think angels appear in the way that is most useful for any given situation. And uh, certainly if they showed up like uh, the fearsome-looking beings described by our biblical ancestors, that wouldn't be very helpful to us. We would probably be more terrified and uncertain than uh, feeling that um, a friendly person has come to our aid. So angels do walk among us, and uh, they often disguise themselves just like us. One of the uh, um, icons that we have in our dining room has to do with the, um, uh, the angels that visited uh, Abraham. He had these three men that visited him, Uh, on the plains of uh, Mamre, I believe it was, and they ate a feast he offered them in in hospitality. I I think that's the the name of the icon, the hospitality of Abraham. And these angels uh, conversed with Abraham, uh, and uh, he had no no idea that they were, in fact, fact angels. So as you say, we may encounter angels every day. So I guess, you know, we we ought to be on our best behavior when we we encounter a stranger at at the door. Well, many people believe that angels show up sometimes to test us, and uh, they might test our charity, our willingness to help somebody in need, and that's quite possible, too. But, you know, that feast with Abraham um, sparked many a debate for centuries, even, uh, as to whether or not angels could actually eat food. 
uh, or did they just fake it? Did they just look like they were eating? Because technically angels wouldn't need to eat. And it's a very curious debate that went on. There was a, another tale told about the archangel Michael, when, uh, who, who often took the role of the angel of death to fetch souls. And uh, in one story, he is the angel of death who comes to take Abraham away. And uh, he first sits down and uh, also shares uh, some food with him. And uh, there was a lot of debate over that, too, over well, whether or not uh, the Archangel Michael actually ate or just made the appearance of eating. Uh, I find it very amusing that we can get hung up in uh, uh, details like that. Uh, it's the appearance, you know, and, and um, it's conveying what somebody needs to feel comfortable with uh, in order for something else to be accomplished. That's right. We tend to we tend to get into these silly discussions about uh, uh, all things sort of supernatural. You know, are, are uh, well, if angels do eat, are they vegans? Do they eat meat? <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> uh, how do you, how does one uh, if one wishes to commune with angels, uh, or, or is that even within our control? Or is that uh, entirely up to to God to decide? I think it's very possible to establish a connection to the angelic realm through prayer and meditation. And uh, many people have been able to connect with uh, angels they feel are uh, like guardian angels or very concerned with their daily life by asking, by asking for those uh, beings to make themselves uh, known, to come forward. And uh, in prayer and meditation, uh, we might get different kinds of responses depending on the individual. We, we might hear a voice in our head. We might have thoughts that are impressed uh, in our mind. We might feel a physical presence around us. And uh, angels are very responsive to, to our petitions for help. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, they've often uh, told people that they stand ready to help humanity, but they have to be asked. It is not their purpose to intervene at will um, in, in our lives, to pull our chestnuts out of the fire. Uh, and here again, people will, will then question, well, why, why should an angel show up and help someone unexpectedly and, and not help someone else? And we, we don't really know uh, how we spontaneously or even subconsciously make appeals to the divine for help. But um, in an emergency, certainly a lot of people will pray very intensely. Absolutely. Uh, Listen, Rosemary, got to cut it here short. Uh, my apologies, but uh, thank you for joining us. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, uh, Talking Encounters with Angels, the Encyclopedia of Angels, Ask an Angel, and many more works. Uh, thank you, Richard. Thank you, Rosemary. Good night. Good night. State Secrets with Nelson Thal on the other side. Stay with us. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. 
And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. And welcome back to the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. And uh, it is that time we are joined by media scientist, archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan, a disciple of Penn Jones and May Brussels and uh, many that were uh, on the trail of the uh, JFK assassination uh, uh, teams. And a uh, great pleasure to welcome to studio for State Secrets, Nelson Thal. How are you, Nelson? Just great, Richard. It's after midnight. The ruling elite are gone to sleep. We can come out and play and talk about the state secrets that they don't want people to hear about. All right. Well, what do your um, uh, trusted sources within the intel community have for us this week? A couple of interesting items for us tonight um, that have come about since the last time we were on here. The first one is very interesting. It talks about the geoengineered snowstorms that are wrecking havoc especially in the United States. There's a mountain of data, including already conducted experiments, satellite imagery, lab tests of snow observations, and multiple existing patents, um, all of which point solidly to the conclusion that these snowstorms are being engineered with well-established weather modification processes. You know, Rich, I really enjoy getting into the patents because they are sort of like following the money. Right. And I have um, two known patents for the process of artificial ice nucleation for weather modification are posted on my Twitter site, Nelson S. Thal. All right. Um, now, the Chinese government has openly admitted that they are creating artificial snowstorms. And if the Chinese government can routinely create snowstorms, how much more advanced must the U.S. government be at this? Exactly. Well, um, I remember several conversations I've had over the years with Scott Stevens, who is a former TV weatherman from Pocatello, Idaho, uh, who one day uh, just up and quit. He said he could no longer look into the camera and tell the American public uh, about the weather as if it was some natural event. And uh, so I said, well, you know, what types of weather systems are being manufactured? Uh, is it, you know, is it the, the hurricanes? And he said it used to be. He said, but now it is virtually all of the weather. All of the weather is being manufactured. And now Scott Stevens, of course, has sort of dedicated his, his life to trying to, to expose uh, this. Now, these patents, uh, who... I can understand why someone, let's say, in the American Southwest would want to seed the clouds uh, and, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in times of drought. They need rain for their crops. That, to me, is a positive force uh, to try and control the weather. But who else is trying to control the weather and, and to what end? Well, Richard, in a world of mutually assured destruction, nuclear bombs are no longer a way of, of – uh, uh, 
having of warfare, of mounting warfare. And so we – other means of – uh, of weaponry were developed for the arsenals. You know the Russians. I point everybody to Colonel Tom Bearden's book, Soviet Weather Modif uh, Engineering, a terrific book, and his second book, Oblivion. You can go into the Soviets were well ahead of the Americans in in weather modification, weather engineering, and in manipulating and changing the location of the jet streams. And right now that's what's happening. They've maneuvered and changed the direction and the uh, velocity of the jet streams and are bringing cold air down into the United States and then using their buzz saws as they call them and the harp equipment in order to turn rain into snow and to create these snowstorms. I asked Scott Stevens, I said, what are the telltale signs that a weather pattern, let's say for example a hurricane, is man-made? Yeah. And he, he talked to me about – I don't understand this. I'm not a meteorologist. Uh, but he said it's, the fingerprints are very obvious. If you look at a satellite image of a, of a, of a hurricane, for example, in the eye of the, uh, the storm is a hexagonal – it's a geometric shape. It's not a natural formation. It's, mm -hmm. it's a hexagonal shape. So, I mean, can you talk to me about what kind of – you mentioned – you know, altering the course of the jet stream, and 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 I'm 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 sensing that you're you're talking about HARP there, the High Altitude Auroral Research Program, this array of radio towers up in the Copper Valley in Alaska. Right. But I mean, can you talk to me how that's done? How do you how do you create a hurricane and then use it as a weapon? Well, the, let, let's okay, we, let's just stick with the snowstorm and we'll okay. with for a moment. But as a as a commercial pilot myself, holder of commercial pilot license. Uh, you can easily – having I've been flying since the 60s. You can tell from the cloud formations that there is not – that there is the unnatural use of technology being employed on the atmosphere in order to alter the weather. So the telltale signs for a weatherman is just to look at the, the uh, jet stream and to look at the clouds. And you've seen on the internet many of the pictures of the rolling type of cloud and the different type of cirrus clouds and uh, cumulocirrus clouds that come about as a result of high, um, high altitude manipulation of the weather. Well, as uh, Bob Dylan said, you don't have to be a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. <laughs> what else do you have for us, Nelson? Item two, a recent CNBC clip in which financial analysts admit to viewers that America is under the control of a group of central bankers who are building a world government just shows how the establishment has dispensed with any pretenses of trying to hide their agenda. And I have the clips from CNBC on my Twitter site, Nelson S. Thal. Listeners can go to that Twitter site and watch it. But at the height of the last economic crisis, Bilderberger member and Financial Times columnist Gideon Rackman argued that everything is in place for a dictatorial world government to be imposed by a technocratic elite. Now, what's interesting is let me just go on here and you'll see there's an interesting connection now with our first story. These technocrats have not been bashful in openly announcing what they are doing. A global government is now being forcefully pushed as the solution to all manner of problems but specifically in relation to financial crises. We're being brainwashed – this is what insiders are saying now to me. We're man, 
the media is being used to brainwash people to accept the premise that a centralized power in the hands of a tiny elite is the only recourse and that one world currency is inevitable. Now, in early 2012, it's a Scientific American article entitled, quote, Effective World Government Will Be Needed to Stave Off Climate Catastrophe, unquote, argued that global management of the planet was the only means of combating global warming. So you can see that they can manipulate using weather modification, manipulate the weather to create the disease in order to offer the cure of world government. Right. And, and I think there was um, someone discovered in the minutes of uh, an annual meeting at the Club of Rome where they actually uh, – uh, that was the smoking gun. They talked about in this meeting – and this is going back in the 60s or the 70s – how they needed to create some sort of a, uh, a natural cataclysmic event in order to uh, – which would later sort of be echoed in the Project for a New American Century when they talked about the need for a new Pearl Harbor. But the Club of Rome was talking about creating in the minds of the public a natural calamity like climate change. I mean, that's, that's it right there. They mention it right there. And then, lo and behold, here we are 30, 40 years later, and now they're talking global warming and, and uh, uh, how, you know, we need, uh, uh, we, need, um, we need to all come together in some sort of, you know, national unity government. And, and uh, this is, you know, this is the greatest crisis facing mankind and so forth. So, and getting the world leaders together to start ta – not talk about it, but to finalize it and prepare the plans may be in the offing right now with the funeral of Nelson Mandela. So we should watch for what comes out of it and what statements are made. Everybody should be very careful to watch the statements that are made, who attends the funeral and that will be – this, this is – they use these events as – lightning rod points to bring in new policies which they've had ready to employ for many, many years. So we should watch that. Uh, they'll, they'll, what was the line of uh, – in the States, the, the, they never miss a good opportunity. Ram Emanuel, wasn't that his line? Right, right. So there's a great opportunity here. So they're going to be pushing to maybe use this this funeral as a vehicle for that. So we should keep an eye on that. Nelson Thal, State Secrets here on The Conspiracy Show. we got time for one more. One more. Remember Jacintha Saldana, the nurse who was duped in the royal phone call scandal. Three days after the call, she was found hanged. The news media called it a suicide. What was fishy about the story is that the nurse had access to a pharmacy of drugs that she could have used to commit suicide. Why would she choose such a violent death by hanging herself when she had other options? There was no evidence that she was suicidal, unstable, or psychologically frail, Richard. Just now, let me back up very quickly. This is the uh, other nurse. Uh, some pranksters, some ho uh, morning show pranksters from Australia called uh, the hospital where uh, uh, the princess was, Kate, Kate was, Middleton. Su uh, supposedly yep. suffering from uh, morning sickness. Yep. And this nurse supposedly inadvertently sort of spilled the beans and gave out some, uh, some inf rather embarrassing information. And it wasn't really her fault. In fact, she only passed the phone on to somebody else. And then she ends up committing suicide over that, which yeah. seemed very strange. At the very time. strange. Now, her body bore injury marks on the wrist, a medical report 
uh, based on her autopsy stated. Now, insiders are now saying that Saldana learned that Kate rented the womb of a surrogate and faked Kate's pregnancy. Buckingham Palace insiders claim couldn't risk a leak to the media. That news would have been disastrous to the reputation of the royals and their future king. The unexplained body injury marks on her wrist were the result of being apprehended by her murderer who made her death appear to be a suicide, insiders are now claiming. So the royals rented a womb. Rented a womb. Interesting. Kate rented a womb. All right, well, follow that one and we'll, uh, we'll hear more, no doubt. Nelson Thal, State Secrets, thank you, my friend. We'll be back in two weeks. Have a good time and keep up the great work, Richard. Show's great. Appreciate it. Tim Spreen, thank you. Uh, back next week with a Pastor Jonathan Kahn, who will reveal the precise date of Christ's birthday. And here's a hint it's not December 25th. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in the whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.